This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. When facing challenges, unpleasant tasks, and contentious issues such as homework, screen time, food choices, and bedtime, children often act out or shut down responding with reactivity instead of receptivity. That's what my guest for this part of today's show calls a no-brain response. But our kids can be taught to approach life with openness and curiosity. Parents can foster their children's ability to say yes to the world and welcome all that life has to offer, even during difficult times. This is what it means to cultivate a yes brain. When kids work from a yes brain, they're more willing to take chances and explore. They're more curious and imaginative. They're less worried about making mistakes. They're better at relationships and more flexible and resilient when it comes to handling adversity and big feelings. They work from a clear internal compass that directs their decisions, as well as the way they treat others. Guided by their yes brain, they can become open, creative, and resilient. I'm Armin Brutt. Join us as we explore how we can get our kids and ourselves into a yes-brain mode for as much of the day as possible. It all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah. And I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Daniel Siegel, who's the co-author with Tina Payne Bryson of The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. Let's talk about, before we get to the yes brain, a no brain. And yeah, not, not in the sense what? of no brain, as in you don't have one, but a no brain in, in, in terms of the way that people react to stress and, and interact with the world. Right, exactly. Well, you know, if you just hear the word no, and I could do it now if you want, but if you hear the word no harshly, imagine what it brings up in you. And for a lot of people, they get reactive, meaning they want to fight back or run away or even freeze and tighten up their muscles, or for some people, even just collapse in a faint. Those four Fs of fighting, fleeing, freezing, and fainting are what a no-brain means. It literally is when you feel threatened and you're reactive rather than receptive. 
reactive to the stress of the world? Is that what you're talking about? Reactive to, yeah, reactive okay. to the stress of the world and even reactive to a relationship, like with a parent or a, a partner, a friend. And these ways of being reactive shut you down from being open to what's going on. Okay, and so that was, that was the second part of it, was the other R there, being reactive instead of receptive. And so I was trying to figure out how the receptive part fits into something that may make you, know, you feel like fleeing or fainting. What are you not being receptive to? Exactly. Well, receptive is a yes brain state. Literally, we could talk about the brain circuitry involved, but what a yes brain does is it actually turns on what's called the social engagement system. It allows you to engage with others and even have reflection inwardly so you are aware of what you're feeling and thinking. And in all these ways, a yes brain creates receptivity within and receptivity to others as well. And why is this important? Well, it's important because all of our learning comes from a receptive yes brain state. But when we're in a reactive state, whether we're having that because we feel threatened by things going on or even internally we interpret things in a way that we feel threatened, either way you shut yourself down to learning well. And as a parent, if we can learn to create a yes brain state rather than creating a no brain, which many of us do as parents, even though we don't want to do that, we do it, then we're creating, if we're doing the yes brain approach, increased learning, increased sense of an internal compass, an increased way where kids feel resilient and interested in engaging in the world. Give us an example of of something that we do as parents, just a simple thing, and maybe we'll talk about a few different examples over the course of the show, but that we we do without even really thinking about it that ends up triggering this whole cascade of, of things that turns into a no. Exactly. Well, one common way that um, we think of parenting is we want to discipline, meaning we want to you know, punish kids is how we interpret that. But discipline actually means to teach. So if you take this idea that parenting is an opportunity to teach, let's do one very simple example. Your child says, hey, I want to have ice cream before dinner. Now, you may say, well, obviously I have to create structure. I have to create a way in which they understand we don't eat dessert before the main meal. So, of course, you say, no, we're, we're not having ice cream. That is a really stupid idea. So that would create a no-brain state. Now, you may say, well, you have to do that because you're creating structure, and here's the key. If you say to your child, I see what you're feeling, which is I'm excited about having ice cream, so then you say, literally, oh, of course you want to have ice cream before dinner. So that creates an openness because you're seeing what they're feeling, not just responding to what they're saying, and that's the crucial difference. You see their mind beneath their behavior, and then you say, I'd like to have ice cream too, but you know, if we ate dessert before the main meal, we wouldn't have any appetite left. So let's have our dinner and let's think about whether we're going to go to the ice cream parlor by walking around the park or we're going to walk straight there today after dinner. And what you've done there is you've created structure. You've shown them you don't have dessert before dinner, not on usual nights anyway. And you've created a yes brain state, meaning your child says, what I was feeling my parent sees my feelings, even though my request was not accepted, and I realized what I was feeling was okay. That's a yes brain way of reinforcing the relationship. But if you do the no brain approach, 
it often makes a child feel bad about not just what they were asked you to do, but who they are. Uh, what if you do something that's just even further to the yes side and just say, you know what, I've never done that before. Let, let's just do it. Okay. Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, the first thing to say is a yes brain approach to parenting is not about being permissive. So one of the risky things about calling a book Yes Brain is people say, <laughs> oh, yeah, you want permissive parenting. But right. it's actually just the opposite. Tina Bryce and I, what we want to do is say you can create structure while also encouraging resilience. So here's what you can do if you say, look, we usually don't have dessert before dinner. But sometimes it's okay to make exceptions to the usual things you do, so let's try it out. Let's have ice cream, not tonight because we really want to eat and there's all sorts of things going on, but tomorrow let's plan on a reverse meal. Let's have the ice cream first, and you can do that. It's always good to be flexible, but you don't want to make it where your child's request was honored simply because they're asking for something. They need to learn that not getting what they want, and doing this in a yes-brain way, by the way, is something that's fine. It doesn't shame them. It doesn't humiliate them. It just shows I can explore things and my explorations are honored even if we don't carry out the request. Well, so that's an important part of it is the, the building resilience by essentially not giving them what they want, but doing it in a way that recognizes the deeper feelings that are there. Exactly. And we have a little acronym, you know, I love acronyms that's a little cheesy because it's brief but it's balance, it's resilience, it's insight, and it's empathy, B-R-I-E. And when you look at how to build these four things in your child, balance is being able to have this internal way of enjoying life. Resilience is when the joy goes away and you're either in chaos, you know, your emotions are going nuts, or you're rigid, you're shutting down, you learn how to bring yourself back to balance. Insight is being aware that your inner life is very important, And that's a natural bridge to empathy, where you understand the inner life of someone else. So when you're creating a yes-brain approach to parenting, what you're doing is you're building these four skills of balance, resilience, insight, and empathy. And it's basically giving your child the capacity to go forward in life when they leave your home with this internal compass that will guide them in a proper, strong way, no matter what kind of challenges they encounter. Now, are these kinds of things you think that that make actual structural changes in the brain, or are these more just simply playing out in behavior? Because I know there's so much talk about neuroplasticity and and epigenetics and all these different kinds of things that are are, are ch- making physiological changes in us. Is this one of those? It's absolutely one of those. You know, I wrote I wrote a textbook for undergraduate and graduate programs called The Developing Mind. And what Tina Bryson and I have done is taken the science of exactly what you're saying, how the brain changes in response to experience, reviewing thousands of scientific articles, and then translating them in a way that parents can both understand them, but even more importantly, apply them in everyday parenting. So yes, the answer is the brie, the balance, resilience, insight, and empathy, actually build very specific structural changes into the brain that simply can be called a more integrated brain, which means different parts are linked together. And amazingly, when you as a parent learn how to build an integrated brain in your child, that child has 
every form of regulation, regulating attention, emotion, thought, behavior, and even the way they relate to themselves as well as others, all those forms of regulation come from integration, and you can build it as a parent. Does it work the other way around as well, <clears throat> that by by adopting this attitude and trying to keep these things in your own mind, that you're actually possibly making some structural changes in your own brain, and you're possibly, as a parent or as a human being, becoming more aware and becoming more resilient and more balanced and, and the rest of Brie? Well, you probably can't see the smile on my face, but you got the whole secret of the sauce because, you know, we, we have this thing for parents themselves that you want to live from a yes brain approach, you know, and, and when I do talks, I mean, people say, why did you do this just for kids and adolescents? I said, it isn't. It's also for you because it's exactly what you're saying. The brie is something you can partake in also, and the beautiful thing about it is you can develop integration in your brain at any age. So while, you know, we love our kids and we, we want to provide the best yes brain approach we can, the beautiful thing is everything you learn about what you can do with your child, you can do with yourself. It's really fun and it's effective and it's based on science. Talking with Daniel Siegel, who's the co-author with Tina Bryson of The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Daniel and want to get into some of the components of Brie. I'm Armin Braun. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. For more information on this latest method of CPR, visit handsonlycpr.org today. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Daniel Siegel, who's the co-author with Tina Bryson of The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. And let's let's talk about some of the components here a little bit. We t- touched on this a little bit, but, but go into the balance part a little bit more. Yes. Yeah, the balance part is, think about, Armin, you know, when you feel really joyful. You know, you allow emotions to be felt inside of you. You're aware of your body. You're aware of your thoughts. You're aware of your images. And they don't get too chaotic. They don't get too rigid. They're kind of activated, and they make you feel alive, right? I mean, you ever have that kind of feeling? Not for a while, but it's, it's familiar. Not yeah. for a while, but let's see if we can get it for you right now. Okay. Um, you know, you can actually approach life with a sense of vitality and appreciation and gratitude and joy, really. And so that's what we mean by balance. It doesn't mean like you're over the moon saying happy, happy, happy all the time. But it means you realize that life is a a privilege to have this opportunity to be alive, and why not make the most of it? And that's what balance is. Now, if you think of it like a river, it's a central flow. On one edge of the river, one bank is chaos. On the other edge of the river, the other bank is rigidity. So in this balance, what you're doing is traveling down this river. It's a river of integration, it turns out, but it's really the river of balance. And that's the way you can imagine it 
as a parent, when you're trying to support sensing, is your child in this flow or are they stuck on the banks of chaos and rigidity? Then how do you then get that point across to the child, though? How do we well, begin imagine, to build that? <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. So, so the way we do it is by realizing that every child has this yes brain capacity. And it's quite simple in a way. You know, you can literally induce it by trying with your child saying no harshly several times. They feel like agitated or shut down or, you know, really not comfortable. They're either going to chaos or rigidity, basically. And then you offer them yes in a calm way. And they can feel the transition. You can then have them put a hand on their chest and a hand on their abdomen. And that can help move them into a more integrated state. And even sensing their breath. There are lots of things we teach. But the idea there is to see the difference between the non-balanced state, which is a reactive state, versus the integrated flow of a yes brain state. And you can teach this to kids very readily. I teach it to everyone I work with. I have, you know, teachers start doing it in classrooms. And when parents do it, it's fun because then you say, you know, are you in this what we call the green zone or are you somewhere in the, you know, explosive chaotic red zone or the shutdown blue zone? You know, there's something that's that's coming up more and more and more these days in all sorts of articles and research and the importance of sleep. And I think it's something that is so overlooked and it gets lost partly, I think, because of the schools, because they, I think they, they're perfectly aware of the research that shows that teenagers in particular need more sleep, but they insist on having classes that start at seven or eight. Um, what can we do to incorporate sleep as, as a... You know, it's- as, right. as something that's critical to our kids' development. You know, it's one of seven um, things that we need to do every day that we, we include as exercises in the Yes Brain book. But this one, sleep that you're pointing out, is so crucial. Now we understand sleep is a time when your brain is cleaning up all the unavoidable toxins it releases when it's active during the day. And we need eight to ten hours of sleep, depending on our age, some people get get by okay with seven, but you know, generally eight to ten is a good thing to think about, especially for kids. Um, and we're not getting enough sleep, and so your brain is accumulating all of these toxins. So, what we know is that when you don't have the sleep time, in part to integrate in learning, but also to clean up these toxins, you don't focus as well the next day. You can't recall as well the next day. You can't integrate the information you learned the prior day. And you're emotionally more irritable. Uh, your connections with other people are more fragile. So, you know, all those ways, you know, not getting enough sleep, sadly, creates a brain that doesn't function well and relationships that aren't optimized. So sleep is probably one of the most important of the seven steps that we teach to try to create balance in a child's life. And it is overlooked. And so much of what happens with technology with screens and also just the amount of homework kids have, you know, can really keep them up late and sleep should be an absolute priority. What's one other? Another one is something that uh, is basically not there around much. It's playtime. And in playtime, what that means is not so much playing on an athletic team where there are rules and exactly what you have to do is prescribed and there's win or lose, but a time when you can be spontaneous, humorous, 
let things just arise naturally. And when this happens, and there's lots of research on play, uh, in fact, we just put out a book in our series on play, um, what happens with play is you're giving the brain really a time to create new firing patterns that allow it to literally tap into new ways of engaging different circuits, and that's the base of creativity. When you just have a child doing prescribed, you know, after-school activities or doing homework or in classrooms where they're just required to study stuff and spit it back out, you're not giving them the kind of playtime we're talking about. And sadly, the brain isn't given an opportunity to turn to its own resources to come up with creative solutions to problems. So play is essential for all mammals, but as humans with our high you know, intellectual ability, it's really useful for even thinking in a creative way. So Absolutely. play would be a second of the, yeah. of the seven we talk about. Okay. I want to have you talk a little bit about something that, that sounds kind of cutesy, but it's actually disguising something that's more important uh, that you talk about in the resilient brain part of it, or the R component of Brie, uh, which is pushing and cushion. I thought those were kind of oh, exactly. opposites uh, in, in a way, but they go together. Talk about the, yeah. how, the differences yeah, I mean, and then exactly how they work right. together. Well, listen, how they work together is a challenge, uh, and basically what that means is the cushion and the cushion is sometimes kids feel like they can't do it on their own, and you have to give them a little push, and you say, I think you can try it. Try it out. I think you can do it. I think you can I, you know, give it a go. Uh, other times, they're really upset, and being with them, you know, sitting on a cushion with them, that's the cushion, you know, is that you're nurturing them and saying, wow, that was really hard. You're really upset, and that's especially when they're either in the blue zone or the red zone. Uh, you know, these are where you're chaotic in the red zone or shut down the blue zone. And then what you're doing in the cushion part is you're saying, I see you that you're not in that balance flow, and I'm going to support you in developing resilience and moving back into the flow. And right now you, you're learning to do it with me, and when you learn to do it with me, you're also going to learn to do it on your own as you get a little older, and that's fine. So that's the cushion versus the pushing, and sometimes you do one and the other, even with a child a certain age, um, and different temperaments of kids, you know, can lead to you feeling the, really the art of parenting. We try to talk about this in the book, you know, is how do you know when to do the pushing or giving the cushion? Okay. Now, there's so much stuff in here, we can't, can't fit it all in, but uh, I want you to talk a little bit about downtime. And we talked about sleep is certainly is one of the big downtimes, but there's other kinds of downtime as well. And you talk about it in the the insightful component of the of the brain about the power of pause and just learning to contemplate and think and think about things from different perspectives. Uh, talk about that part. Oh, absolutely. You know, Blas Pascal uh, is a writer who once said, you know, if we could just sit quietly by ourselves, we would change the entire world. And if, if everyone could do that, and it's true, and downtime is basically so different from what we think we're supposed to do as busy, busy parents, scheduling all the time. Downtime is where your child is basically having nothing they're supposed to do. They may complain about being bored, restless. Oh, my God, where, where, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. It's a way where they're given really time and space to just let their mind have nothing it has to. They're not playing with anybody else. They're not having to focus their attention on something specific. And this downtime, research shows, is essential for a brain to recharge. 
you know, you're not sleeping. Sleep, we've said, is really important. But downtime is where you're just letting your brain kind of meander its way through whatever. Um, and when you do this, what's really beautiful about it in terms of insight is it gives the time. It builds on a, another kind of time we talk about, which is um, time in. It gives the time to really be with your inner mind. And even if a kid says, hey, I'm bored, that's really good. Let them not be frightened of just being with their own inner presence because if they can do that, they're going to have the capacity as they leave your home when they, they're adolescents and older, you know, to just be with themselves. And that's what downtime helps them do. Daniel Siegel is the author, the co-author with Tina Bryson of The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. Daniel, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, great to have you. Armin, it's great. Anytime. Thanks a lot. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm a new father, and my company recently offered me the option of working from home a few days a week. That sounds pretty great to me, but I'm curious about the positives and negatives. As someone who's worked from home for more than 20 years, I can definitely see the attraction. You get to work at your own pace without people standing over your shoulder. You reduce your commuting expenses and dry cleaning costs. You have a lot more time with the family, and you get to work in your PJs. Sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Well, maybe yes, uh, maybe no. Let's start with some of the advantages. Extra time. Nationwide, the average commute is 30 minutes each way. But in major metro areas, hour-long commutes are pretty common. Add in the time it takes you to get ready in the morning and unwind when you get home, and you can see that telecommuting could easily give you an extra hour or two with your family every day. Depending on the particulars of your job, you might be able to take off in the middle of the day to run errands, you might be able to start early or work later, and so on. Extra money. You'll spend less on gas, tolls, parking, subway fare, lunches, and so on. Focus and productivity. People won't be dropping into your office to chat or get you to buy Girl Scout cookies, and you'll avoid unnecessary phone calls and other distractions. That will enable you to get more work done. A variety of studies have found that employees who work at home are 13 to 25% more productive than those who work in the office. Health and morale. People who have control over their workplace tend to be less stressed, which makes them physically and mentally healthier. Now for the disadvantages, some of which are actually related to the advantages I just talked about. Work-family balance. The reason why remote workers are more productive is that they typically work longer hours. A study at the University of Texas, for example, estimated that telecommuters put in five to seven per hours per week more than office workers. Working from home, you may be tempted to check your email a few times after dinner and before bed, make a few extra calls over lunch, and so on. 
This will be an especially big problem if you are a workaholic. It's a lot harder to knock around ideas and brainstorm with other humans when you're not there. Working alone, even if you have regular email, text, and other contact with your team, can be pretty isolating. That can lead to depression and other mental health issues which may affect your work. Working from home, your contribution to the company might be less visible and you could find yourself less connected with your coworkers. There's a lot that goes on at lunch besides eating. It's where relationships are forged, office politics are discussed, and important rumors are shared. Unrealistic expectations. Trying to get any serious work done while there's a child in the house is going to be very, very difficult. Babies, for example, have a knack for demanding attention right in the middle of important conference calls. Bottom line, don't let yourself be a stranger to the gang at the office. Stop by when the regional manager is in town. If a group's getting together for someone's birthday, be sure to make it. After all, you deserve a chance to catch up on what's happening in the office and enjoy a little corporate camaraderie. And don't forget to bring the baby pictures. If you've got a question or a comment or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send us an email. You can do that through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. Hey, but don't go quite yet because you know this already, but there's a lot more Positive Parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Son, we got to talk about drinking. I know. I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't, yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I, I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before their teens, start talking before they start drinking and keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com, and want to thank you for staying with us. Do you know that praise is essential to the growth of a healthy brain, and that experiences of praise and blame affect how long we live? Do you think people shouldn't be judgmental? How judgmental are you? Our ability to judge is far more than a matter of taste. According to my guest for this part of today's show, our appraisals of one another form the contours of our relational landscape, she says. Judgment not only informs our daily interactions, but also shapes our identities and how we interact with the world, from our best friends to our bosses. From infancy, 
Our brains become attuned to praise and blame, and these experiences forge deep-seated values and create what she calls a judgment meter that we use to orient ourselves throughout our lives. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about judgment. We'll start with infancy and childhood when brain development is rather rapid, and we'll progress on to partnerships and marriages, and then we'll even look beyond the familiar world into the public sphere, in schools, and in the workplace. And we'll look at different types of judgment, specifically praise and blame, and see how they affect us throughout our lives and what specific types of praise and blame have the biggest effects. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll start talking about passing judgment when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday, I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to casafamilyday.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Terry Apter, who's the author of Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. Terry, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's talk about judgment and praise and blame. I want to get, just lay out some some ground rules or some definitions that we can use for sure. the, the rest of the conversation about what those things are, because I, I think it's not completely intuitive. I get, well, if you think about it, I guess it is. But when, when I was re- thinking about judgment, I hadn't really thought so much about praise and blame. Somehow they seem different. Am I well, the only of course, one when doing... we think about judgment, we often think about negative judgment. So people say, you know, don't judge, um, judge not lest ye be judged. And right. it's the idea that you shouldn't judge people, you shouldn't form a negative opinion of them. Um, and it's a, also, it's a reminder, those little phrases are, um, are reminders, very sharp reminders that you are also vulnerable to other people's judgment, that other people can look at you and think very bad thoughts about you. But in fact, judgment is something we do all the time, and it's certainly not just negative. If I say something's wonderful, I'm making a judgment. Uh, If I say something is important or something's valuable, that's a judgment. So we have to realize that making a judgment is also positive. What often gets neglected is how often we are doing this. So, you know, we meet someone, we have an interaction, and we're having a positive or a negative response to other people. We're thinking, gosh, are you someone I want to trust? Are you something, someone I want to be close to? Are you someone who understands me, who gets me? Um, or are you someone I'd rather avoid? Are you dangerous? So those, that, that's the big map. 
But I talk about it in terms of praise and blame because that's how we experience other people's judgment. So if someone looks at me and thinks, you know, gosh, you're interesting. I want, you know, I, I'm curious about you. I want to get to know you more. Um, I think your ideas are good. Um, I think you're funny. All of that I experience as a kind of praise, even though um, it's not a specific compliment. And that's normally what you think of as praise. Oh, well done. Good job. Great. Um, you know, the, the praise really goes, our, our experience of praise goes way, way beyond that. And so to blame, because, right, well, when you think of blame, if you think of it in um, a strictly logical sense, then you have to be blamed for something, and then you have to ask, well, is it something you did? Is it something you could help. And so if I were a lawyer or if I were a philosopher or if I were a logician, it would be all about that. But in our day-to-day -day lives, if someone says, you know, I don't like you, well, I'm, you can say, that person can say, I'm not blaming you, I just don't like you. But what you feel <laughs> yeah. is, I'm not what that person wants me to be. I'm not what that person needs me to be. Right. You know, one now, of the things... it's someone we don't know or we don't care about, we can do our best to shrug that off. Yeah. But if it's someone, if it's a parent, if it's a close friend, if it's a partner, if it's a co-worker, then we will feel that very um, deeply, and it will feel like blame because the message is, you are not who you should be, or you're not who I need you to be. Well, you talk about how this whole neural pathway, if you want to call it, I mean, the, the, the brain, this structure is built on judgment from the very, very beginning, that babies are thriving on it, and that we, we, there's been so much talk, and it's gone back and forth about self-esteem, and how much do you praise your kids, and do you, are we over-praising them, and what's that leading to? What sorts of of effect is judgment having on the brain? Well, first of all, the brain, the human brain, just does judgment. That's, that, that's what it does. And we can talk about how early the onset is in two different ways. As you've said, um, it's very early between, um, you know, from birth, parent to child. The first thing that a child needs not only food and warmth and physical safety, but also very close, curious, loving, praising attention. Who are you? I want to get to know you. What are you feeling? You're so interesting. You're so wonderful. Um, you know, the, the, the growing brain needs that. Without that, there's a great deal of stress and uncertainty and too much stress is really toxic for the young brain because it prevents a lot of those um, neural connections from being made. The brain becomes less plastic, less able to change and absorb more. But you can also think of um, the long-term need or the long-term compulsion to do judgment uh, from an evolutionary point of view. 
Yeah, that's what I was especially interested in. You need other people to live. I mean, you know, you can say, oh, I'm independent. I don't need anyone else. We all need other people. You know, as soon as you walk into a heated room, as soon as you sit in a chair, you're sitting, you know, you're, you're drawing on human culture. And we need other people to survive. But we also need to judge other people. We need to assess, are they friend or foe? Should I um, approach them or should I avoid them? And that's the very, very basic template of judgment. And these are um, conducted in very different parts of the brain, so you won't confuse them. You know, you'll, you'll have a pretty good idea of whether you're drawn to someone or whether um, you want to avoid someone. Well, um, I want, Terry, could you, I want to just go back a little bit to the, the sure. child development part of things and, and the praise there, because that's such an important thing, I think, particularly for parents who are listening the yeah. in the beginning i certainly understand the the need for praising and encouragement and you can do this and 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 you know the, even the the look that you have on your face and the tone of voice is a, mm. is a type of praising and encouragement for kids but but there comes a point where you talk about this in the book that there there's specific types of praise that are effective and others that are not effective and it's the you can be anything you want when you grow up, which sounds like a lovely idea, but it really can be debilitating for kids who are, you know, most of us who are not going to be everything we want to be yes. when we grow up. Or you, you are so good at that. Or you, oh, this is the most awesome thing I've ever heard. Uh, you know, that type of praise that kids of at some point they begin to understand on their own that this is not sincere. Yes. So when you're a baby, you have an undeveloped sense of self. You're growing it with your parents. Later on, you have your own ideas about what, you know, I mean, later on, I mean, by five or six, you can have your own ideas about what it is you want to do, what it is you want to achieve when you're drawing a picture, when you're, um, you know, uh, tying a shoe. And for um, someone to say, oh, you're, you know, this is the most wonderful thing in the world, that can be very frustrating and demeaning because it isn't attuned to what you are trying to achieve. In the teen years, of course, this becomes even more complicated because teens have a very um, ambivalent uh, attitude towards their parents' approval. They still want it. Um, on the other hand, they have their very own ideas about what they want to look like, what, who they want to be, what they want to achieve. And so sometimes a parent saying, you look lovely, can mean to a teen, I must look really dorky. I must, you know, <laughs> I don't want to look lovely to my parent. Um, but Often the tension is you're praising me for something I'm not. You have an outdated view of me, and who are you to judge anyway? Um, you know, if you ask a teen what do you hate most, one, uh, top on their list tends to be other people judging me because right. they feel that limits them. I'm talking with Terry Apter, who's the author of Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Terry. 
If you're pregnant and you smoke, you need to know that your risk of your baby being born too small is one and a half to three and a half times greater. By quitting now, your baby has a better chance to be born at a normal weight and to have healthy lungs. But it's also important for you to stay smoke-free after your baby's born. For free materials on quitting or to speak to a quit coach, call the National Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Public Health Service. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Terry Apter, who's the author of Praising Judgment, I'm sorry, Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. Uh, so, Terry, just before the break, we were talking about uh, teens and praise and being aware of, of the type of praise. Please continue. Well, teens are very sensitive um, about praise and blame from their parents about their parents' judgment. They still value praise from a parent. They still crave a parent's approval. I mean, for all the talk that there is in um, layman's terms and, you know, the general public about how teens want to reject their parents, how they want to rebel, study after study shows that they really do continue to care about a parent's opinion. On the other hand, they wanted to reflect who they are or who they want to be or who they hope to be. And um, they can be very, they can show a lot of irritability if a parent praises them in ways that they think just aren't right. It doesn't reflect right. exactly. who they really are. Yeah. You know, you also talk in the book, I think it, it was very interesting about one of the major predictors of divorce and going beyond yeah. things like shared interest and sexual chemistry and the number of arguments that people have, the, it, there, there seems to be a magic ratio, you call it, of praise to blame in the relationship, well, and indicating that you can have... about couples is that they, they start out with this idea that we totally accept one another, um, you know, unconditional love. Well, that's um, crazy. And it may be unconditional attachment, but if you look at their interchanges, they will be, it will be packed with both praise and blame. And, you know, blame can be a little question. Um, have you renewed our insurance? Is dinner ready? Um, you know, has my, uh, um, ha has the house been painted yet? You know, ha all of these things can, in certain contexts, imply blame. You know, you haven't done something. And um, a lot of couples um, quarrel a lot, have, have uh, very specific um, directed complaints about one another, and that doesn't seem in itself to be uh, a predictor of divorce, but as long as there's lots of praise as well. So as long as you say, you know, I, I so appreciate what you've done, I'm so interested in you, let's talk about this, tell me more, um, I, you know, I love being with you. As long as there are, it seems, five such positive messages to 
every um, blaming message, then the um, couple are very likely to stay together. But if there's more blame than praise, if the, you know, then um, that is very likely to damage the marriage and a very strong predictor of divorce. Well, what about if you've got different perceptions? I mean, that, that's got to ah, figure right. in there somewhere. Yes. I mean, somebody says, hey, is dinner ready? They may not mean that in any sort of a judgmental type of, of way at all, yeah. but it could be perceived depending on whether you're feeling guilty about not having made it or excited about it or, or you feel that somebody didn't notice last time you make dinner. So, I mean, there's so many different things that go in there. So, you know, the ratio, depending on who you ask, is going to be different. That's right. That's why knowing that ratio isn't sufficient to save your marriage because uh, you you know you you see that you've criticized um, your partner quite cruelly, um, and then you say, "Oh gosh, um, l- let me mend this by complimenting her." Uh, well, the compliment might fall flat because it doesn't reflect anything she values. Or um, you may um, think you're complimenting her, but you are not. She may think that you've criticized her when you think you haven't, but it is the perception that matters. And so a lot of, um, you know, marriage work or marriage interchange will be getting to know what it is that um, feels like praise to your partner and what it is that feels like blame, and also being able to pick things up so that you say, uh, you know, I, I asked when dinner was ready, but um, I'm asking because I want to know whether I have time to finish this. I'm just planning my evening's work. I'm fine. So hopefully you can work that out. But that's um, that's a big part of marriage work. And what's interesting is if if it's a couple that expresses dissatisfaction, then one uh, partner is likely simply not to pick up on the um, positive comments of the other. So the partner who is dissatisfied will say, you know, I didn't hear any praise, but the other person believes that he or she has given a lot of praise. So it is very subjective, but that's what matters in the marriage, how each experiences what the other is doing. Now, you talk in the book about the value of gossip. And something yeah. when I was reading that phrase, I was thinking, boy, there's, there's a, something I had never thought of putting those together before. But I've been talking to a lot of people doing interviews of, about social media, mm-hmm. and particularly with teenagers, and there is so much that if you start thinking about it now in terms of praise and and blame and judgment, I mean, that's so much of what social media is about, is, oh, look what this one's wearing, or that one ate at this restaurant, or look at her hair, or or his jeans, or whatever. That There's so much of it there, and so much of it can be so destructive. Talk about the, the benefits and the value of, of gossip. Okay, well, gossip is a way of exchanging unofficial information about who's doing what, about people in your world, about people, you know, you both, both speakers care about. And so 
you want to know sort of behind the scenes what other people really think of others, what they value, how they judge others. So you may know, um, you know, what's safe to express to them, what's it's safe to be with them. Um, you know, it's a, it's a way of finding out about your world. Now, I would say that social media is very different from that socially cohesive gossip where you're exchanging interesting news about other people, because social media is outside the context in which um, you can uh, pick up on someone's interest or lack of interest. You can question what is it you mean. You can show you're slightly disapproving of what they say or you're questioning it. There is room for explanation. There's room for nuance. In social media, there isn't. And what social media does is magnify and encourage judgment, but in its crudest form. And it doesn't come with all that stuff that we as people, um, as a breed, have learned over our lifetimes and indeed um, over uh, uh, the evolution of humans to pick up on uh, w what they're feeling, what they're thinking, um, it, that there's a real person there I, that um, I might hurt if I say something. It's it's so crude, it's so brief, um, and it's so destructive because of that crudeness. It brings out the worst in judgment and makes us either for or against. It really pushes the possibility of nuance, of revising our views, to the side, um, and that's its destructive power. Well, so just I, I want to put you on the spot because we only have about 30 seconds left. What's the best way to tell what sort of, how what you're saying is being perceived? We're pretty good at this, naturally. Um, faces are great communicators. Voices um, express a great deal. Body language does. Just it's flexibility and observation. Be willing to see what the other person is doing. Be willing to revise your own views. Always be curious about the other person. Remember that lack of curiosity is a form of dismissal, a way of saying you are not interesting yeah. enough for me, uh, and I don't value you. Terry Apter is the author of Passing Judgment, Praise, and Blame in Everyday Life. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.